turn please to Mark in chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, I want to begin reading. I'll tell you the verse when I get there. Mark 12, verse 13. I want to read 13 through 17. Mark chapter 12. Once you've found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now as we come to your word, I pray uh, that you would cause us uh, to receive it, to honor it, to respect it, to revere it, that you would attend our hearts to it, attend our minds to it, uh, attend our ears to it, that we would not only comprehend this word, Father, but we would apprehend it even better, that it would grab a hold of us, And, Father, that this word would have its perfect work in us, transforming us, renewing us, restoring us into the very image of our Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Later, they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him. In his words, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin. He asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. And they were amazed. At him. Now remember, we've entered in this particular life of Jesus, time of the life of Jesus. He's come into Jerusalem. He's heading towards the crucifixion. This is this last couple of days before the crucifixion. Uh, the religious leaders are testing and trying Jesus. And the, the main question, really, we asked and found last Sunday. And it's that question where Jesus is asked, By what authority do you do these things? That's really the issue. The authority of Jesus. Because you see, Jesus has come and he has commanded people to follow him. He's told people to abandon everything else, all their other trust, all their other faith, all their other confidence and trust alone and trust in him. He's called people to honor him as they would honor God. He's called people to trust him as they would trust God. He's called people to obey him as they would obey God. He's called people to follow after him. He's called people to trust that he has the right, that he has the authority to forgive their sins, that he has the right, that he has the authority to grant them eternal life, that life is his, and that he has the right, the authority to confer it upon them, to confer it upon all who believe in him. We made the distinction last Sunday that there's a difference between power and authority. A sniper has the power to take people's lives but not the authority to take people's lives a police officer protecting the lives of others has the right the authority not only the power but the right and authority to take the life of another but a sniper of course doesn't have that authority there's a difference between power and authority Jesus says I have the right I have the authority to grant you eternal life That's really the question, isn't it? Does he really have that authority? Does he have that right to do that? Can we trust him? 
with that. So that's really the question of Christianity. It's not whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. It's not whether you're an evolutionist or a creationist. It's about whether you believe that Jesus has the authority over all of life. Because if he does, then everything else kind of falls into place under him. Every belief that we have, every thought that we have, everything that we think, everything that we say, all the things that we do come under his authority. So the question is, does Jesus have this kind of authority? Now, the religious leaders in the days of Jesus hoped he didn't, didn't think he did. In fact, they thought they had the authority to at least set the course of life for the people who were in Israel. And now Jesus was threatening that authority plus every other authority as he came. That's the question. Does Jesus have the authority to do this? So they come to test him. And, and you'll notice, as it says in verse 13, that uh, this was a delegation. There was some intention there. They said they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him. Uh, this wasn't uh, uh, just some sort of casual meeting. It wasn't some sort of opportunity. But they were sent. They, it was just a plan to catch Jesus in his words. And so they posed these tests or even if he gave any kind of answer, that that answer that he gave, whatever it was, would be a failure in that, and therefore, he would be in trouble either with the people or with the Romans. And so they come to Jesus. Jesus saw right into their hearts, and he saw that they were filled with hypocrisy. Now, we know what that is. We know what hypocrisy is. It's at its best in sincerity, and as, at its worst, it's a great deviousness there. It's play acting. The Greek word for hypocrisy or hypocrite is one who is an actor, a play actor. As you've said before, if they gave Academy Awards, you could give a, an Academy Award for the uh, best supporting hypocrite. Because that's what it means. It means that you're playing the part of another. You're not really not sincere in this. It really isn't who you are. And so they come to Jesus. And their hypocrisy, you see, is known to everybody. You didn't have to be the son of God to peer into the situation and see that there was hypocrisy here. The first thing that would give it away was the fact that the Herodians and the Pharisees were together. That'd be rather like Ted Kennedy and Jesse Helms um, getting together to sponsor a bill. You'd say, there's something wrong with this picture. They, they never get together like this because, you see, the Herodians were just that. They were sympathetic to Herod. They were sympathetic to Rome. They were Jews, but they were sympathetic to Rome. They thought the Roman occupation was the best thing that ever happened to Israel. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the separated ones. They weren't in league with anybody but themselves. And they wanted to separate from Rome. They didn't want to give Rome anything at all. In fact, as they come with this particular question, their view, obviously, is that we should never pay this tax to Rome. We should never pay this tax to Caesar. At the very least, that would make us traitors. At the very most, that would make us idolaters because Caesar says that he's God. So how can we support that? Whereas, of course, the Herodians, in asking this question of Jesus whether they should pay this tax, thought, of course, the tax should be paid. So they come together, united, to defeat in their own minds Jesus. But their hypocrisy is also seen in the way they approach Jesus with this flattery. We know what flattery is. Flattery is what we tell people to their face that we never would say behind their back. It's the opposite of gossip. Gossip being what we say behind their back, we'd never say to their face. The only value in gossip over flattery is at least we believe that. At least we're being sincere when we say that. But flattery, you see, it's not encouragement, it's not honor, it's not respect. 
because it's insincere. But ironically, there they were speaking the truth because they said of Jesus this, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. That is, their position doesn't affect your position. You pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? They were right in their assessment of the character of Jesus. In fact, ironically, it was that very character that caused Jesus to be able to catch them in their own words. They come with this question. The Herodians, obviously, waiting for Jesus to say, no, don't pay the tax. Because then if he said, no, don't pay the tax, they'd run off to... Rome, they'd run off to the Caesar, they'd run off to the authorities, the Roman authorities, and say, here we have an insurrectionist. Here we have a traitor against Rome. He's telling the people not to pay their taxes. Then they would hope Rome would deal with Jesus and get him out of the picture. The Pharisees were rather hoping that Jesus would say, sure, pay the tax. Because then if he said that, then they would run to the people and say, here we have one who's a traitor against Israel. Here we have one who's saying we should pay this idolatrous tax. And then they would stir up trouble against Jesus. So they thought they had Jesus nailed. Yes, no, whichever way he went, he'd be in trouble with somebody and somebody with power and somebody who would be able to reject his authority and say that he wasn't the very one. He claimed to be the very Son of God. And so that question is posed to Jesus. So he asked them a question. Uh, back, of course, he says, or he makes this statement. He says to them that they should bring him a coin, a denarius. And he takes this coin and he looks at it. And I, I would only imagine at that moment, well, I can't say what he did. What I would do is I would have just paused for a while and looked at it. Just to draw attention to the moment. Just to draw attention to the coin. Just to get people thinking, what's he really going to do here? Is he going to say pay the tax? Is he going to say no? Is he going to flip it? Is he going to throw it? Is he going to stamp on it? What's he going to do with this coin? And there Jesus looks, I suspect, at this coin for a moment. And he asks this question that we have in our passage. He says, whose portrait is on this? And what's the inscription? Well, they respond correctly. They would know what this coin would look like. It had a picture of Caesar on it. And the inscription said that he was the almighty Caesar. In fact, an inscription on the reverse side would say that he's the high priest. So then Jesus, I suspect, again pauses after realizing whose image is on this and he says, well then, render to Caesar what is Caesar and God's what is God's. Whatever did he mean by that? Uh, what was his point really? Well, should they pay the tax or shouldn't they pay the tax? You get the impression that he's saying, sure, here's Caesar's coin. It's got his face on it. Give it back. Pay the tax. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. This is his. It's got his image on it. It has his little insignia on it. It's got his name on it. I guess it belongs to him. Give it back. And some would say in so doing, Jesus was giving some sense of credibility to, to secular government. And we certainly can read back into the text, back into this particular situation, that to be true. For instance, if you'll turn to Romans in chapter 13, here's what Paul says about taxes, government. Romans 13. Of course, Jesus would agree with whatever Paul was going to write because whatever Paul was going to write would be taught to him by the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit of God sent by Jesus to 
these who wrote the scripture. So Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is a rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to, you, uh, to do, good, do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authority are God's servants who give their full time to governing, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe him taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is not only Paul's view, but of course Peter's view as well. If you'll turn to 1 Peter in chapter 2. Peter has just said that the church is a holy nation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and you may get the impression, well, since we're a holy nation, then we certainly don't need to pay taxes or submit in any way to our government, so why don't we just be independent? And here's what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme ruler or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men, live as free men, but not, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, live as servants of God, show proper respect for, to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. And so you get this sense of, of, of respect, of reverence. But you do so because government is under the authority of God. Peter says, do this for the Lord's sake. That is to say, do this out of obedience to the Lord because it's God who instituted government. Now that is not to say that every governor, everyone who governs, every mayor, every congressman, every president, every vice president, you name your office or officer, it's not to say that every one of those does that which is pleasing to God, but that God instituted their place. God decreed that their place would exist, that this institution would exist. And he did so ultimately that they might reflect his good to us, that, he, that, they might reflect, that they might reflect good and do good to us. So Paul, Peter, Jesus says, respect them, honor them, even secular governments. In fact, if that weren't the case, and we honored government, that is to say, if God hadn't instituted government... And we honored government, it would be idolatry. Anytime we give honor to something apart from God or in addition to God or other than God, it's idolatry. But God has said, do this. So if we honor the government for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of God, for the sake of Christ, it isn't idolatry. In the same way that if we honor our parents, it's not idolatry. If you honor your employer, it's not idolatry. If we honor each other, it's not idolatry. If we're doing it out of reverence for Christ, for the sake of the Lord. In fact, the only way 
Christians can say the pledge to the flag is if we do it in the spirit of our nation being under God. Now, whether that little phrase ought to be in the Pledge of Allegiance, I'll leave to others to decide. I'll speak to that as a citizen, not as a preacher. But I can say this, that it would be idolatry for anyone to say, to pledge their allegiance to a country or even to another person unless it was for the sake of Christ, unless it was under God. Does that make sense to you? I didn't make a political statement, so don't write me. All right, now. So Jesus says, yes, pay. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that every officer of government is moral or does that which is pleasing to God. Nor does it mean that the government has absolute authority over us. There are two instances or, or two categories of instances where we can appeal. But let me put it this way. One way that we can appeal, one way we can outright disobey. We have the privilege in our country, as part of our country, to appeal, to protest. And so we're allowed to appeal our taxes. We're allowed to appeal rulings of government. We're allowed to protest even against them with respect and hope to change their minds because we're allowed, encouraged, invited even commanded, if you will, to participate in a variety of ways by voting, participation in the process and all of that. So we have that right to do that. That isn't violating the spirit of what Peter and Paul and Jesus speak of. But we also realize that since government does not have absolute authority over us, only God does, that any time government or anyone in authority over us causes us or invites us or commands us to do that which is in violation of God's law, then we mustn't submit. We see that all throughout the scripture. For instance, you remember the midwives in Egypt, the midwives who were Israelites, and Pharaoh said to them, kill all these little baby boys born to the Israelite women. And the midwives disobeyed. They said to Pharaoh, you know, these Israelite women are so strong that these babies are born even before we get there. <laughs> They said, Pharaoh doesn't know much about these sorts of things. And he bought it. You might remember when Nebuchadnezzar said to Shadrach and the boys, you've got to, you've got to bow down to this golden image, and they didn't. And they were right to defy the government authority at that point because that would have been going against the very heart, the very nature, the very law of God. Do you remember when King Darius said to the people, you can't pray for a month, and Daniel said, I pray. So he opened his windows and prayed. That was right to do, to defy that decree, because to honor that decree would dishonor God, and therefore he was right to do that. You remember when Peter and John were asked not to preach in the name of Jesus, they said, sorry, we must preach in the name of Jesus. We've been compelled to preach in the name of Jesus by God himself, therefore we'll obey God and not men. And you can find opportunities throughout history, even in politics, where Christians have defied government on the basis of obedience to God, we must be careful, but we still must not allow anyone to cause us to dishonor God in the context of our life, no matter what the cost may be, really, to us. But, but that wasn't on Jesus' mind at all. I mean, he just simply said, pay it. 
Even though this is a pagan government and even though Caesar thinks he's God, uh, what I want to do is explain some principle to you. And that principle is this. Whose image is on this coin? Who has discretion over this coin? Who has authority over this coin? Well, under God, Caesar does. Give it to him. But render to God what is God's. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, if Caesar has discretion over that upon which is his image, that which bears his image belongs to him, what bears the image of God? We do. And there he is in the midst of this group of people who don't look much like they bear the image of God, but the truth of the matter is we've been created in the image of God to glorify him, to reflect him, to show him to be great. There's a sense in which just as those people picked up a coin and said, oh yeah, that's Caesar, people ought to be able to look up, pick us up and go, oh yeah, I can see God. I see the very image of God. I see the very inscription of God in this person. Jesus wasn't able to see that in these Herodians and these Pharisees. And so you see, that was the kicker to them. The kicker is, why are you so concerned about this government authority? Shouldn't you be more concerned about the one who has authority over your soul? Shouldn't you be more concerned about the one whose image you're to bear but at the moment aren't? Shouldn't you be more concerned about him? And I don't know if anybody thought... Incredibly chilling words of Jesus when he says, Don't be afraid of the one who can only kill your body. Afraid of the one who can send your body and soul into hell. Be concerned about that one. That's real authority. Don't trifle. Get right to the heart of it. Are you giving to God what is his? What is his? That which is to bear his image. What is to bear his image? We are. How will we ever bear the image of God? Of course, the answer to that question is standing right in front of them. Because right in front of them was this very one who perfectly bore the image of God. This very one who is an exact representation of God, who is the divine radiance in even his human nature. Everything that Jesus did reflected who God is. You see, our whole being is to be consecrated, surrendered, submitted to God. We're to render our whole beings, everything about us to him. Because you see, when you think about being created in the image of God, think about what that means. What that means is, if you look at God, for instance, not visually, we think about God, for instance, we realize that he's omniscient, that he knows everything. Now, we are never going to be omniscient because we're never going to be God. Shirley MacLaine thinks, but that's Shirley MacLaine. Um, we're not going to be God, but like him, we know. Like him, we think. Like him, we have knowledge. Like him, we have understanding. And you see, our knowledge, our thoughts, our understanding are to glorify him, are to reflect him. People should be able to crawl into our minds, take a look at what we're thinking, and say, that reminds me of God. 
Just like a person should look at that coin and say, oh, that image looks like Caesar. Or to think the thoughts of God. God is omnipotent, powerful. And while we're not omnipotent, have all power, we do have life, we do have strength, we are animated, we are to, to do things, we are to be creative, we are to be productive. And when people see what we do and how we do it, they ought to say, that reminds me of God. God is, is a social being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God didn't create us because He was lonely. He didn't need the company. Wouldn't that be horrible? To think that you keep God company? <laughs> I think He could be more easily entertained. But he's social. He loves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's love. There's community together. And so he, he, he creates because that's who he is. He creates because he's a creator. He creates because he extends himself always in love. And as he made us, he made us social that we're to communicate to each other. We're to care for each other. We're to be merciful to each other. Compassionate to each other. Forgiving with each other. We're to be all those things which reflect God. So people should be able to listen to our speech. And just by the very words we say and how we say them, and they should say, oh yeah, that makes me think of God. They should look at the things we do. And they should say, oh, that reminds me. That reminds me of God. Or to bear His image. But obviously sin in us has distorted that. It's distorted our thoughts. So that our thoughts can be malicious, our thoughts can be judgmental, our thoughts can be critical, our thoughts can be hateful, our thoughts can be judgmental, our thoughts can be lustful, our thoughts can be uh, arrogant. So much so that when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he speaks of the futility of our minds. It's not that we're not smart, it's just that our intelligence never really leads us anywhere. Same round and round, generation after generation. And our speech, it's not sprinkled with kindness and gentleness, encouragement and words that edify and words that build up. And we find ourselves being malicious with our speech, slanderous with our speech, flattering, flattery with our speech, gossip with our speech, crude with our speech. Not to resemble, not to resemble God in our actions. So the question is, how is it that we're going to be able to, to be gods? How are we going to be able to image him? How will anybody see this in us? But Jesus is standing right there. Jesus is standing right there, the very image of God. And it's all in him and what he will do. First and foremost, you see, he says he will justify us. That is, he'll make our relationship with God right. And he does that, of course, by way of the cross. By way of taking the penalty for this distorted image, our sin. And paying that penalty and restoring our relationship with the Father. And then, of course, that leads to our adoption. We become part of the family of God. And when you become part of a family, when you're born into a family, you begin to resemble your parents. You know, now that I'm 50, I look in the mirror and you know what I see? My dad. I just see him. He's there. I don't know how he got there, but he's there. Uh, you just, you can't help it. You just end up resembling them. You, you young teenagers here going, no, that'll never happen to me. Yes, it will. <laughs> Be careful what you say to your parents about how they dress and stuff. 
it'll get you. And so he says we're going to begin to resemble him. That's the point. Jesus will restore the image of God in us. That's the, the great news of the gospel. Yes, it's great that we're justified, but our salvation doesn't stop there. Our salvation not only includes just this becoming right with God in some sort of legal sense, but also in this experiential sense where we become his and we begin to, to look like him and he restores that image in us so that our thoughts increasingly reflect him, that our words increasingly reflect him, that our actions increasingly reflect him. My hope, your hope, our hope together is that five years, ten years from now, twenty years from now, that we will more complete completely resemble Christ than we do today. I weary at my sin. I weary at some of the thoughts that go through my mind. I weary at some of the things I say. And I know they're not glorifying to God. Yet they still come out of my mouth. It's still me. And, and, and some of the things that I do, I just... I long for the day when those thoughts won't be part of my head. I long for the day when those words won't be part of my mouth. I long for the day when those actions won't be part of me. And God says, I'm restoring the image of Christ in you. Notice quickly Colossians in chapter 3. The middle of verse, well, I'll read all of verse 9 and 10. The apostle writes this, he says, Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self. Now here, here is the, the definition of this new self, this born-again self, this one that Paul writes in another place, this enables us to be new creations. He says, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That is to say, this new self has all this right new information, all this right new knowledge. And what it's doing, and what God is doing in you, is causing this understanding, cause this disposition of life, cause this new life to be taking over in you. And when it does that, it's renewing in you the image of God. That's what we should be expecting. That's what we should be acting towards, thinking towards. And so Paul's able to say, now take every thought that comes into your mind and make it obedient to Christ. And you say, well, how can I do that? He says, because the new self, because this, this new inclination in you, this new life in you. I know it's a struggle. I know you've been thinking these kinds of thoughts, saying these kinds of words, doing these kinds of actions for a long time, but, but something now is new, radically new. So put off that old, grab a hold of this new, because what's happening in your life, what's really taking place in you, is that you're being renewed into the image of Christ. That's who you now are. And that's what you should now expect over the course of your life. I often think of the illustration of the little boy who, for the for all his might, he wants to be a basketball player when he grows up. He's 10 years old. He gets a visitation from an angel in the middle of the night. And the angel says, you 
are going to be a star player for the University of Kansas Jayhawks. It's a given. It's going to happen. Little boy wakes up the next morning. What do you think he's going to do? He's 10 years old. He's got to wait till he's 18. Do you think that he's going to wake up and then just sort of whittle his time for the next eight years away and not shoot hoops again? Because he knows he's going to be a star. He knows it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. So do you think he'll just wait or what do you think he's going to do? I think he'll do this. I think the next morning with that word from the angel, he's going to wake up and he's going to be so excited that before his mom and dad get up, he's going to put on his sneakers. He's going to put on the, well, when you go play basketball and you're 10, your clothes don't even have to pass the sniff test. So he's going to put on what's ever on the floor and he's going to go out in the driveway, no matter what the weather is, and he's going to start shooting hoops. Why? Because he has great hope. Because he really knows that he's been told by an angel he is going to be a great basketball player someday and every time he makes a shot he's going to go yep that's right that angel just hit it right on the nose and every time he misses a shot he's going to think that's okay because I'm going to get better I'm not going to miss that shot forever because I am going to be a great star but you see that's what God tells us he says look at that coin who's on there Caesar okay look at you Whose image is on you? If you're a believer in Christ, the image upon you, the mark upon you, the mark of ownership upon you, the family resemblance in you is God. That that shouldn't make us be lethargic and say, well, then it really doesn't matter. I don't suppose. No, that's what gives us hope. And so every time we think a good thought, a righteous thought, a thought that reflects God, we should say, Holy mackerel, that's right. I have been born again. And every time we think a thought like we've always thought, those thoughts which don't image God, we don't need to become so discouraged that we quit. We simply need to say, but, but because I'm a new creature in Christ now, I turn away from that thought. I confess that thought as being an ungodly thought. And I trust that the power of the Spirit of God in me, this new life, will help me and enable me. And so Paul says, take off that old, put on that new self, because this new self is that very one who is being renewed in the image of our Creator. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness and grace to us. So Father, I, I pray for us, I pray for me, that you would enable us all professors in Christ that you would enable us increasingly to reflect you God I pray that we would be people both individually and corporately when people would hear the thoughts we think as we express them that those thoughts expressed would resemble your thoughts, your understanding of life. When they hear the words we say, Father, it would be as if you're speaking them, for they would so resemble you, be so in your likeness, so in your image. And Father, when people see the works that we do, works of of love and compassion and kindness and, and mercy, as we extend the gospel 
as we sacrifice for each other. That people would see that and they would say, that looks like God. Father, I do pray that you would grant to us the hope wherever we find ourselves this morning, whatever mess of sin, whatever difficulty of life, you would grant to us the great hope that in this very one who lived out the perfect image of God, that he in us will enable us to put off sin and its misery and put on that which is righteous and holy and walk with you. Father, may people see what we do and glorify you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. I don't think I need to tell you what that means. So receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him. He was able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ whom be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.